Hello and welcome to the Spyro Podcast. Today is our year-end episode for 2019. We'll be going over the seven most significant articles related to pulmonary and critical care medicine. First, azithromycin may reduce treatment failure in patients hospitalized for acute COPD exacerbations. Adjusting PEEP is not effective for patients with ARDS. Switching from dry powder inhalers to pressurized meter dose inhaler may decrease exacerbations and improve disease control in patients with asthma. Robotic bronchoscopy is superior to other technologies for diagnosis of peripheral pulmonary nodules. Statin therapy before septic shock may decrease the risk of ARDS. And there is now a COPD risk prediction tool that has been validated for the general population. And finally, vaping is bad for your lungs. A Flemish government-sponsored study published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine studied if a patient was admitted with a COPD exacerbation and was treated with three days of a 500-milligram dose of azithromycin, and then this treatment was continued at 250 milligrams every other day for three months. They tested to see if it would keep a patient from being rehospitalized. 147 patients were randomized to the azithromycin treatment group and 154 to placebo. At three months treatment intensification, such as, say, rehospitalization, this occurred in about 47% of the azithromycin patients, but there was a 60% treatment failure of those in the placebo group. Based on this, the authors concluded that three months of azithromycin for acute exacerbation of COPD that required hospitalization did significantly reduce treatment failure during the highest risk period of being discharged. Of note, though, there was no clinical benefit six months after withdrawal. I could see this being used in a certain COPD population, but doctors are going to be hard-pressed to ask patients to pay for three months of azithromycin treatment without a specific source or indication. Of course, this study was done in a country where antibiotics are free. JAMA published an article that asked if there were any clinical benefits of titrating PEEP based on lung mechanics using an esophageal pressure balloon compared with, say, empirical high PEEP fraction of inspired FiO2. This is a strategy that is most commonly used based on the amount of FiO2 determines the amount of PEEP that you want to use in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. 200 patients were randomized. No significant difference in composite outcome that incorporated death and days free from mechanical ventilation through day 28. Therefore, the authors could not support using esophageal pressure determination for PEEP titration over the PEEP FiO2 strategy. All I can say is thank goodness. The PEEP FiO2 strategy is straightforward and actionable. Imagine trying to place esophageal pressure balloons in a typical community hospital ICU and then trusting the numbers enough to titrate PEEP. I highly doubt this would be successful outside of a tertiary care hospital ICU with 24-hour in-house intensivist and respiratory staff that has lots and lots of experience using the esophageal balloon pressure determination. What made me choose this article as one of the more significant articles that we were presented in 2019 is that it showed us both the validation of the PEEP FiO2 strategy but also throughout my training and ever since, I've always been told that esophageal pressure measurements and then titrating for ARDS with PEEP based on those measurements was the gold standard. 
unfortunately, we see that that's not the case. The journal Respirology published an article showing that a real-life effectiveness of inhaler device switch from dry powder inhalers to pressurized meter dose inhalers in patients with asthma treated with inhaled corticosteroids and LABAs. Whew, that's a long title. This article comes to us by way of a large South Korean hospital. They showed a 25% improvement in outcomes when compared patients to themselves before and after the switch. Not sure if their findings are directly comparable to the inhaled drugs we use in the United States, but their article does suggest that if our patient's asthma is not adequately controlled with a dry powdered inhaler, then maybe switching to a pressurized meter dose inhaler may be a better option before reaching for other interventions. Their findings did persist for the full six months of the study. Not necessarily groundbreaking stuff here, but this is definitely something that could be applied in a pulmonary clinic on a day-to-day basis. Simply changing from a dry powder inhaler to a pressurized meter dose inhaler is a very straightforward and simple intervention before moving on up to other things when you have a 25% chance of improvement in the patient outcomes before trying to switch out or add another type of intervention. Next, the results of the Precision One study were finally reported at CHEST in New Orleans this year that suggested that the use of robotic bronchoscopy was superior to electromagnetic navigation, radial endobronchial ultrasound, and the use of an ultra-thin bronchoscope. There's a lot of details covered in this talk, but the overall gist is that the in the right hands, robotic bronchoscopy increased the yield with an increased ability to localize and successfully puncture small peripheral pulmonary nodules. The primary takeaway from me is that robotic bronchoscopes are prohibitively expensive with a poor return on investment for any small hospital. However, it is best in the hands of experts at high-volume centers. If you have a patient with a small peripheral nodule and your suspicions are high for malignancy, I'd send them to a high-volume facility with a robotic bronchoscope before trying to use electromagnetic bronchoscopy or other bronchoscopic technique. Of course, a lot of factors come into play when considering where and how to achieve a diagnosis. But in my experience as an interventional pulmonologist, the robotic bronchoscopy or an electromagnetic bronchoscope with cone beam localization are the best for being able to get the tool into the lesion. However, Just because the tool is in the lesion does not mean that the lesion is in the tool. Nothing is 100%. Also reported at this year's CHEST annual meeting was the use of statins to prevent ARDS. Researchers evaluated patients with septic shock in a community hospital intensive care unit from about December 2013 to December 2014. Statin use prior to hospitalization admission was determined by the home medication list. Outcomes were defined as ARDS, ICU and hospital length of stay, and ventilator days. ARDS was less likely to develop in patients who were taking a statin. However, in this subset of patients who took statins prior to admission, there was no significance in the incidence of ARDS based on the continuation of statins on the initial ICU admission. When the researchers controlled for age, gender, race, diabetes, aspirin, beta blockers, cirrhosis, pneumonia, and albumin, and lactate levels, statin use prior to admission was associated with a significantly decreased risk for ARDS. However, 
statin use prior to admission was not associated with a significant reduction in length of stay, ICU length of stay, or ventilator days. Therefore, it decreased ARDS, but it didn't change anything else. I suspect that statin use for septic shock will find a similar usage pattern as vitamin C in the ICU for management of septic shock. Lots more to figure out here related to statins as we have no idea as to the mechanism by which statins modulate the pathogenesis of ARDS. I have no intention of using this to try to prevent ARDS at this time. Not enough data, and I don't know the risk compared to the benefits as statins are fraught with so many other issues. Our next article from 2019 is from the journal Chest where they published an individualized prediction model for long-term lung function trajectory and risk of COPD in the general population. This is something I was initially excited about when I came across this article. Basically, the authors used an easily acceptable web application that uses a linear mixed effects predictive model based on the Framingham Offspring Study to predict lung function decline over time in a healthy adult population. Predictions are based on 20 common predictors selected through machine learning selection and random effects of model unexplained heterogeneity among individuals. The individualized predictor is an accurate tool to predict long-term lung function trajectories and risk of airflow limitation in the general population. This model enables identifying individuals at a higher risk of COPD who can then be targeted for preventative therapies. I've started using this a little bit, but my suspicion is that this is a tool that is for the otherwise healthy, as the authors mentioned, and so therefore would be better used in the primary care clinics when an early intervention could be employed instead of using it on patients that are already severely obstructed. This is one of the first predictive modeling applications that uses AI that is easily accessible to any physician and is a wonderful example of how bioinformatics can be rapidly actionable. I'm really looking forward to more of this type of study coming from large integrated healthcare systems with a robust EMR and a substantial bioinformatics program. It is these kinds of studies that are going to allow us to move more actionable interventions for our patients. The study in and of itself is great in that it shows us that these things can be tracked in healthy patients. However, there is no data to show how this is going to be used to track generally COPD patients that have already been diagnosed with COPD. I'm looking forward to seeing how that turns out in future publications. Last but not least, number seven of seven. This is not just one article, but this is a culmination of several. What we have learned is, vaping is bad for your lungs. The headlines have been inundated with vaping articles. We've seen vaping articles discussing biopsy results, those results showing sometimes a popcorn lung type of pathophysiology as well as maybe a pneumonitis more consistent with a chemical burn than say what was expected like an allergic response or an allergic reaction or even hypersensitivity. What we did learn was that THC vaping and flavored vaping seem to be worse than the basic nicotine replacement vaping products, but injury from exploding devices has also caused injury. Vitamin E extracts have been blamed, as well as other type of oils have been blamed. The articles are really starting to add up. But in short, what we have learned is that vaping should not be used as a tobacco cessation tool, and efforts to protect youth from the risks of vaping are being rolled out in several states. Either way, 
The standard treatment seems to be supportive care in combination with steroids. Some patients have actually had to be placed on ECMO. Fewer have undergone lung transplantation. No recommendations on bronchoscopy if a vaping-induced lung injury is suspected has been published. I've been doing lung biopsies on my vaping patients to date. The lung biopsies did not change my acute management. All of my patients received steroids at 1 milligram per kilogram divided BID, and I also gave them coverage for community-acquired pneumonia with antibiotics. Fortunately, I've only had three of these patients to date. Of those that I've had to manage, each have had a good outcome. I have no idea of anything we did besides supplemental oxygen and some non-invasive positive pressure ventilation made a difference. There's no literature to show that anything else has made a difference except for the support of care. Hopefully, if these kids stop vaping, we'll see less and less of this. I'd hate to see a combination of a vaping lung injury with flu as we're getting ready to really head into a tough flu season this year. Good luck out there. Now it's time for something I like. I like dogs, specifically rescue dogs. I'm not a cat person. When my son left the nest, he took his dog with him, so my wife and I decided to adopt a rescue. Through a serendipitous meeting, she found the cutest dorky. This is a dachshund-yorkie mix. Despite the pup circumstances, she had the best disposition, so we named her Sunny. So besides their cuteness, why do I like dogs? Well, first, unlike the the latest gadget or gizmo, you'll never grow tired of a dog. From the infancy of a puppy to the regality of an old dog, canines are a constant source of surprises and rewards. Sure, training a puppy is challenging, but they're oh so adorable. Young dogs are energetic and love getting into trouble, always keeping you on your toes. An older dog, meanwhile, is mellow, loyal, and loving. They're like an old friend that has grown to adore you over the years. Next, you'll also have an instant exercise partner. Living in a world of couch and computer potatoes means it's something hard to become motivated, go outside and get healthy and fit. It's not like we have Julian Michaels from The Biggest Loser hounding us, and the goldfish certainly isn't going to get us moving out the door. But a dog. One look at that furry face when you go near the leash and you're walking out the door for at least 30 minutes a day. It doesn't even really feel like exercise. Also, a dog is the cheapest shrink around. When you're feeling down and thinking no one loves you, you always have a snuggle partner to make you feel better. That is, if you own a dog. Why? Dogs love to snuggle. They love to put their head in your lap, and they let you know that no matter what, they love you and always will. Dogs are better than ice cream. This is a fact. And finally, love. Dogs wait at the door when they know you're coming home. They dance for you with excitement when they see you, and they're always deliriously ecstatic when you come home. Cats do none of these things. When everyone else is looking at you like you're crazy, a dog will look at you like you're amazing. something I don't like. I don't like Christmas lights. To be clear, I think the neighborhood Christmas light displays are beautiful. Seeing how these displays makes my wife smile warms my heart. But hanging these lights is something I dread. The mere thought of dragging out the gnarled mess of breakable beauties, disentangling them, 
checking to see if they're still working. Climbing the rickety ladder and draping those things across my front porch induces stress, beginning around Thanksgiving until after New Year's. Invariably, strain that worked perfectly well in the ground refuses to work on the side of the house. So there's another trip up the ladder, extended detective work to find the culprit and replace that bulb from a previously uncooperative replacement strand. Well, you see, when my kids were younger, they're all grown up and gone now, I would put a full half day into designing our home light display. I would set up themes, go out and spend another who knows how much money on these things. Now, the thought of digging those things out and repeating the hanging of my cursory holiday chair almost brings a tear. Admittedly, the homes in my neighborhoods are beautifully adorned. Even displays on the gaudy side bring smiles and reminders of family, friends, and the spirit of the season. But is this really worth the hassle and the risk? Okay, don't tell my spouse. But the answer is yes. I hang these things with shaky legs from a rickety ladder because she loves them. Undeniably better natured than I, she shines brighter than the house when she sees those silly, temperamental lights dangling from their hooks. This year, I even decorated her car by zip-tying a Christmas light-covered wreath to her car's grill, and I ran a strand of colorful lights along the sides of the car's hood. <laughs> she loved it. This year is the first year my kids and grandkids are going now. My daughter lives 500 miles away. My son has his own place in town. My four grandchildren are now living in Sofia, Bulgaria, and our visits are just limited to our Facebook portal. No hugs, no kisses, and no chasing after each other. It's heart-wrenching. However, once I put those lights on our house and her car, it's as if I built a house, discovered electricity, and then invented the light bulb when my wife looked at me directly in the face and said, Thank you, honey. I'm not particularly bright when it comes to romance, but I think this wins me some pretty big points. In fact, doing something I dread to please my spouse makes the task not so quite dreadful after all. This small sacrifice is really an opportunity to show her that I value her. Think about it. Is there a better way to show someone how important they are than to do something for them that they know you hate. Does a gift mean more when it forces you to extend yourself? I think so. It may take a while to hang those lights, but by doing so, I let my wife see that I honor her and that I love her, especially during this particularly difficult holiday season. It really allowed me to give her a gift that, for me, reaped some serious dividends. As we close out the year, my healthcare system just announced that we are going to completely change over to a new electronic medical record. The announcement came with all the fanfare of a political promise given during a victory speech. I'm reminded of a poem by Dr. Rafael Campo, entitled, The Chart. Says, 40-year-old obese Hispanic female, I wonder if they mean the one with long black braids, Peruvian who sells tamales at the farmer's market. Tells me I'm too thin. I better eat. Or she the Dominican, with too much rouge and almond eyes at the dry cleaners who must have been so beautiful in her youth. Or maybe she's the Cuban lady, drunk on grief, who I've seen half asleep, alone, as if that bench were only hers, the Parker home. Or 
Maybe it's the Mexican who hoards the littered papers she collects and says they are her, quote, documents. Not. I suppose it could be the Colombian drug addict who's Spanish, even when she's high, is perfect. Or maybe it's the one who never says exactly where she's from, but who reminds me of my grandmother, poor but refined. Lace handkerchief, bald in her plump hand, who died too young from a condition that some doctor knows in chart overlooked. From Mars Hill Media, this is the Spyro Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. If you liked what you heard, it would be great if you would give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the search results. Oh, and tell your friends how to subscribe too. We'll be back in 2020 giving you information to help you take the best care of your patients. Now, I'm originally from Kentucky, so on this New Year's Day, I'll leave you with a version of Old Lang Syne I guarantee you won't hear anywhere else. Bluegrass style. One, two, three.